I'm just going to look at a little passage, something that happened in the Bible involving Jesus and his cousin. So this is in John, and it's in chapter 3 of John's Gospel. The Gospels are the, the historical documents that tell us about Jesus and his life and his ministry and what he did when he was physically here on earth. And, and it's divided up into chapters and then verses. So I'm reading from chapter 3, and I'm going to read from verse 22 to verse 36. And hopefully it should come up on the screen as well. So let, let me just start with this. Verse 22. Jesus has just been speaking. And after he's, been, after he's spoken, it says this. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. And John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all, and he bears witness to what he's seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So, interesting little episode here, slightly confusing in some places. It starts with the two words, after this. So this is after something has happened. Let me tell you, it, what happened was, Jesus had been speaking with one of the religious leaders in the middle of the night, a man named Nicodemus. And Jesus had explained an incredible truth to this man, Nicodemus. And he'd said to this man, Simply by believing in Jesus, it's possible to have a brand new life and to be made not just physically alive, but spiritually alive as well. So Jesus has just shared this incredible news that by believing in Jesus, you get another go at life with this religious leader. He's just shared that with him. And then we see this scene where they're out in the desert in the Judean countryside. Um, There are a few things I want to mention out of this little passage. And obviously this is a picture where people are being baptized. The first thing I just want to think about for a little minute is about baptism. Then I want to talk a little bit about identity. And then I want to talk a little bit about transformation. Uh, and, and then I want to talk a little bit about eternity. So, so, so I call this message from baptism to eternity because that's the kind of journey that we're going on here. And uh, really what you've been celebrating here is exactly what Jesus told Nicodemus. 
that it's possible to be washed clean and to, to be raised to a new life. And they're, 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 they're baptizing here in, in the water. And the, the, the place where they're baptizing gives us a glimpse of what baptism really should look like. Because the place where they were baptizing was this place called Anon, near Salim. Now, the word Anon means a place of springs. So it was a place where there was lots of water springing up. It was a place where there was an abundance of water. And so that helps us to see that this kind of baptism with plenty of water is a biblical baptism. Now, I don't know about you, but I grew up going to a, uh, along occasionally to our local village church, and there was a font. And when they did baptisms, it was about babies, and it was about sprinkling. But this place, Anon, place of springs where there was plenty of water, shows us that baptism is, is, is a bit more of an immersive experience. And, and so, so plenty of water was an important thing. And that's because of the thing that baptism represents. You know, you'll have seen the people going down into the water, and that's this picture of death, dying to just our selfish individual life. And, and, and then when you're under the water, it's almost as if you're hidden. And that, the Apostle Paul teaches, is like us being joined with Jesus in his burial when he's in the tomb. And so for a second, we're entombed. And if you think about a, a font or a sprinkling of water, it's d- difficult to be buried in a, a, a font, isn't it? It's, it's not big enough. Okay, So it, it doesn't show us the biblical picture of what baptism is supposed to be. It's a joining with Jesus in his death, his burial. And then, of course, not staying under the water, but being raised to new life. And so, so, so there was Jesus, and, and there was John. Jesus has his group of disciples. John has his group of disciples, and they're both in the water here, baptizing people. And, and it's almost as if there, was a, there were queues of people waiting to be baptized, and people were kind of I don't know, there was some desire in people's hearts to somehow want this cleansing, to want the forgiveness, to want to be washed clean. They must have been aware of the stuff in their own lives that they wanted to ditch and get rid of. And so there was a, there was a desire. People were coming saying, will you baptize me? Will you baptize me? And, and do you know what? I, I don't think we're altogether different. Because I think all of us, deep down, want to know cleansing and forgiveness. I think we all deep down, desire not to feel the guilt and shame of the things that we carry through life, that weigh heavy on us when we lie our heads on the pillow at the end of the day. I think ultimately, all of us, whether we say it or not, we somehow want to find a peace with God. And that's why people were queuing. Now, we don't always see people queuing outside the doors of the churches in our day, but I believe there's a day coming when this awareness, this awakening in people's lives will start to draw them back again. And we're seeing more and more in our day who are saying, actually, you know, I believe this. I need this. I want this. I'm willing to go through this water. And that's why the church all over the world is continuing to grow. And even today, who knows, even in Bristol, It could continue to grow as people hear this message, put their trust in him, and are willing to go through the waters of baptism. See, I don't think a great deal has changed because when people find what Jesus explained to Nicodemus about this real life that you can have when you believe in him, I actually think 
They find something that genuinely satisfies, that doesn't wear out. And at the moment, I think we f- try and find our, our peace and we try and find our significance in all sorts of wrong areas, don't we? So we, we try and plow ourselves into our career and, and we think to ourselves, well, if, if, I, if I do really well and if I get that promotion, if, if I'm top dog in this workplace, then, then, then I'll feel satisfied and at, at peace and significant and I'll have meaning and purpose in life. But... Uh, you and I, we, even though we do that, we still know that that doesn't satisfy, don't we? And, and, and some of us, we kind of think, well, you know, I know life's a bit strange at the moment, but when I've got the perfect wife or the perfect husband or my, the perfect family that I can parade around with, then, then I'll know peace and I'll be satisfied and life will be good. And, and, and yet, ultimately, we, we, we end up, again, relationships break, things go wrong, and these things don't satisfy. But what Jesus was telling to Nicodemus was that there is a life that genuinely does satisfy and doesn't wear out. And so there they were in the desert. Jesus was baptizing people in the water there. John's baptizing people in the water there. And there's a discussion going on. Did you pick up on that? Some of John's disciples were chatting with one of the Jewish people who were there. And they were having this conversation about purification. Obviously, they're there. They've seen the water. The people are going into the water, coming out, talking about cleansing. So it would be a very natural topic of conversation, really, I guess. And, and they're getting involved in a bit of a theological discussion. What does all of this mean about purification? And, and it struck me when I was looking at that. You know, sometimes... We know we're not right with the world, or we know we're not right with God, but we never bother to ask the questions. And somebody said to me once, asking questions is the key to understanding. And so I I just want to commend to you the Alpha course that was mentioned on the video, because that is a brilliant place to go. It's Wednesday evening, isn't it, starting? Wednesday, it's a brilliant place to go to ask the questions, to, to ask the questions and to discuss things, just like they were doing here, talking about purification. Is it possible to be cleansed? Is it possible to be pure? Is it possible to be forgiven? Is it possible to know God? You see, you get on the Alpha course, you can discuss these things, you can share your thoughts, you can share your ideas. I would chat to somebody. In fact, I would say, if you've got questions, it's a no-brainer. Get yourself signed up for Alpha, and you will absolutely find answers to your questions. So, Jesus is baptizing, John's baptizing And some of John's disciples are looking over at the queue for Jesus' baptism and they get a little bit knocked because they're noticing that the queue for Jesus' baptism is getting increasingly long whereas the queue for John's baptism is is getting shorter and shorter. So they turn to, basically, what they'll paraphrase it, they turn to John they say, John, that, that guy you knew from over the Jordan, are you happy with that? He's nicking all of your baptism candidates. Are you okay with that? And it's kind of like, mm-hmm. But then John gives an answer that tells us something. But so they say to him, look, he's baptizing. All are going to him. Bit of jealousy rising up in them. But at that moment, we get to see something. We get to see exactly who John is, and we get to see exactly who Jesus is. You see, John says confidently when they say to him, do you mind him nicking all of your people? John says this. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. So he's helping them to see something, that it's not actually about who's got the biggest following. This isn't a question about people, it's a question about God. So he turns things around. And this is where I want to mention something about identity, because John starts to point towards 
who he is. You see, John unpacks some really helpful truth that I want all of us in the room to see today, and it all centers around this area of identity. Identity. You see, John is not concerned about the increasing line of baptism candidates that Jesus seems to have, and his own kind of diminishing line, because he's, he, he, he's clear about two things. He's clear about who he is, and he's clear about who Jesus is. And he begins to answer those two questions that every human being is confronted with throughout life, and we spend much of our life endeavoring to find the answer to. Those questions, who am I, and who is God, or even is there a God? They're the two big questions that every one of us seeks to answer but finds it difficult to find answers to. And you know, many of us devote our lives to trying to discover who we are. I remember one young lad who said to his dad, Dad, I'm going to go and have a gap year to discover myself. And his dad looked at him and said, what if you discover him and you realize he's an idiot too? (laughs) Oh. (laughs) But we spend a lot of our life trying to work out what is, what, who am I? Where do I fit? What, what's going on with this whole thing, with me and the world? Why am I here? Is there a God? We ask these kind of questions, but sadly many of us miss the answers. But John answers them. You see, John answers them in a very interesting way. And he says to them this, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. So he's very, very clear, and he's got a deep assurance of who he is and who he is not. He says, I am not the Christ. The Christ is the one that uh, Jewish history would help us to understand. They were expecting one would come who would be a savior, who would rescue them from the tyranny of Rome, rescue people from their sin, and restore God's order to planet Earth. And so all of of Jewish history was pointing to a, a Christ that would come, a savior that would come, a Messiah that would come. And John very simply says, I'm not him. I'm not that one. But he does say, I've got a role to play. My job is to point the way to him, the one who is to come. So he's got a sense of his own identity, who he is and who he's not, but he's also got a sense of purpose and destiny in that he knows what he's here on planet Earth to do. And I just want to bring a challenge. I want to ask you, how would you answer that question if somebody was, or if you were to ask yourself the question, Who am I? Who am I? At my core, who am I? Because I can give you an answer today. But the challenge is this. You might not say it out loud, but many of us think subconsciously that we are the Christ. Let me explain what I mean. You're going through life and you make a mess of things. And so you give yourself a hard time and you blame yourself, you criticize yourself and you give yourself a real dressing down because things are not going well. And then on the other flip side of the coin, when things are going well and there's success all around you, pride comes up because you think, I've, I've done rather well here. I deserve this success. 
Do you see what I mean? We, we tend to think that we are the authors of our own failures and successes. So we either give ourselves a hard time and bury ourselves in envy and disappointment and depression and mental health and all of that kind of stuff, or we go the other way and think, oh, haven't I done well? Look at me. And we get all prideful and we think it's, we become our own savior. And when you're your own savior, you don't see your need for a savior because you think it's all down to you. But there is more to life than this. There is more to life than you and I. There is a Savior. And this is what John is trying to point out. And he says, you know, you can't receive anything, he says. You can't receive anything unless it's given from heaven. He's trying to make a connection between our experience and God. He's basically saying everything is down to him, not us. You know, I spent years and years trying to be my own Savior, giving myself the hardest of times when things were going wrong, and then kind of bigging myself up when I thought I'd done well. And it was this constant fluctuation between success and failure, envy and pride, never feeling satisfied, never feeling at peace. But then one day, I met this Christ. And on that day, the peace that came satisfied. It satisfied then, and it satisfies today. You see, I learned who I was on that day, and I learned who God was, and I became secure in that identity that he gave me. I just knew that day that I was loved. I knew that day that I was forgiven. I knew that day that the peace that I experienced was real and lasting. I wonder if you know that peace. You see, John discovered in this moment his life's purpose. He discovered that his life's purpose was not to be the Christ, but to point the way to the Christ. And for him, it took away all the jealousy, all the envy, all the competition, all, all the criticism of other people, all the jealousy about somebody else's cue. He was secure enough to say, actually, it's not me, it's him. You see, when you find your identity and you find your destiny, there's a peace and all the striving disappears. And I, I quite like the way that it affects John. When he finds his identity, and when he's secure in that, it brings him joy. Look at how he describes it in verse 29. He says this. It's a bit mysterious to start with, but you'll get it in a minute. He says this. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. So he's basically talking about Jesus being the bridegroom here. A bit mysterious, but I'll explain. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So he's now got a complete joy because he now knows he's not the bridegroom, but he's the friend of the bridegroom. And you might think, well, what does that actually mean? Why? Well, he, he paints this picture. There's, there's three characters in that little mini story there. You've got the bride, you've got the bridegroom, and you've got the groom's friend. And when you kind of get under the skin of it and you 
you look at the culture that this text comes out of, it's, it's, it's quite an interesting little picture, really. If you imagine the bridegroom uh, has this friend, and it's a bit like a best man kind of a role. Now, in our culture, the best man would just carry the rings and make sure everybody turns up, make sure he doesn't get too drunk on his stag night, you know, make sure he turns up sober and dressed, not gaffer taped to a lamppost in the middle of Bristol, that kind of thing. But in this culture, the bridegroom's friend had a very particular role. And uh, their, their, the particular role was that at the end of the evening, it was the friend of the bridegroom's responsibility to make sure the bridegroom found his way to the bridal tent and that they became one flesh, if you know what I mean. And he would stand outside the tent and listen. And then when he heard his friend crying out with joy, saying, yes. This marriage has been consummated. The bridegroom's friend would go, my work here is done. And he would be joyful. And he's basically saying, I'm not jealous because it's not my wife. He's saying, my joy is complete because my best friend has now got this wonderful wife for the rest of his life. So his joy is complete. And you see, John found himself being the friend of the bridegroom, Jesus. And he said, I don't need to be jealous. My joy is complete because I'm pointing the way to this wonderful thing that has arrived on planet Earth. Why should I be miserable? Why should I be jealous? You see, when we discover our destiny, the result is joy. You get that. People think, oh, being a Christian, it must be so miserable. Let me tell you, when you become a Christian, what comes is joy. Joy utter joy and a peace and a joy like you have never known to this day and you can know that even today so that's what John says I wonder if you know the joy <laughs> I wonder if you know the joy of firstly knowing who you are and secondly knowing who he is because you can you can know it today I'm going to invite you at the end of my message to discover that joy. You know, interestingly, by using this picture of the bride and the groom, John's also pointing to another truth that we find elsewhere in the Bible where Jesus is referred to as the bridegroom and the bride is his church. So those that have done this act today, that have gone through this baptism water, that have put their trust in him, just as John talked about the bridegroom's friend witnessing this moment of intimacy, we can now know that those people are part of the bride of Christ. They're knitted into the church. They're part of his body, part of his family, and they're now intimately connected with that bridegroom, never ever to be separated. It's wonderful truth that this water represents your union just in the same way that the bride and groom experienced let me mention something about transformation because John says something in here very simple it sounds but also very profound when he realizes who he is and when he realizes who Jesus is he says this phrase you might have picked up on it he said he must increase I must decrease now again this goes against every human trait for status doesn't it he's saying actually I want him to get more popular and more famous and more known and I want to take a back seat now 
And can I tell you, that is exactly what becoming a Christian is. It's saying that no longer do I need to wave a big flag and point everybody to me. Because actually there is one who is way, way bigger, way, way more powerful, way, way more beautiful than I am. And I want to point the way to him. Therefore, I'm going to point the way and I'm going to allow you to see him. And I'm going to take a back seat. You see, it goes against all of our notions of human status and pride, doesn't it? But it actually gets us to where we need to be. It's how we discover our destiny is by making less of us and more of him. And it's important, and it's very simple. It's a bit like, say for example, we were over in Bradley Stoke and, and, and needed to come here. Andy was showing me the way, but I had the car. I had the keys. So in order for Andy to get here, he needed to get in the car with me. I needed to drive because I had the engine. And he was quite happy to sit in the passenger seat. I'm glad too because he's going to take me back to his house for lunch as well afterwards. But can you see, that's what becoming a Christian is. It's saying, I don't have the engine, I don't have the keys, I don't have the answers, I don't even know the direction, but I'm sitting myself in the passenger seat and I'm trusting the one with the engine, the keys and the map. Because God has a way that is higher than our ways and thoughts that are higher than our thoughts. And it's when we tuck in with him that we discover, as John did, life and purpose and destiny. We find out what we're here for. Now, I don't know if you've worked out what you're here for, but there is a plan. There is a plan for every single one of us. And the joy that John experienced was the joy of stepping out of his own colorless plans into God's multicolored plan. You see, he discovered it. He discovered it. In order for that to happen, he needed to decrease. Jesus needed to increase. And it wasn't about John just now being good, and it's not about us being good and living a good life or anything like that. Actually, this transformation comes when we allow Jesus to increase in us. And we think less of ourselves and more of him. You see, John describes Jesus in these few verses in strange terms. He describes him as coming from above, or being above all. Or the other phrase he uses is, he's from heaven. And so he's drawing a, a kind of separation, if you like, from between things that are heavenly and things that are earthly, things that are from above and things that are from below. And he's drawing this distinction, and he's saying, actually, there are things that are perfect, and there are things that are imperfect, and he's saying Jesus has come from everything that is perfect and he's somehow come and invaded the imperfection of planet earth in order to make it perfect just as heaven is perfect. And so that's why in the very famous prayer that we often pray, the Lord's Prayer, it says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want earth to become like it is in heaven. We want all the brokenness and damage and sin and fallenness of earth to be transformed so that it's like it is in heaven where it's joy and perfect and relationship and love and party. We want to see that transformation take place. But this transformation can take place not just for earth, and for her, it, it can take place in every single human heart, from the youngest to the oldest. Any one of us who hear this message today can receive this transformation and discover, like John did, their identity. 
but it's not automatic. It's not automatic. Because sometimes Jesus calls us to this abundance of life, but we just don't hear it. Listen to verse 32. John puts it like this. Talking of Jesus, he says, He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. So Jesus is talking about his experiences, but people are not listening and picking up on it. What's Jesus witnessed? Jesus has witnessed heaven. He's already been there. He's been there for all eternity. He knows what perfection is like. He knows what glory is like. He knows what eternity is like. He knows what perfect love is like. And so that's what he's borne witness to. And he's now coming with this message of life and love and resurrection and destiny for all human beings, but they weren't receiving his testimony. They missed out on that. They missed it. And they were left in their, their shame and their guilt and their solitude and their brokenness. And the big question is this. Will you receive it? Will you receive this news that there is a perfect eternal life on offer for every one of us and we receive it by believing in Jesus? It's very simple. You know, I spent 24 years believing that God wasn't true. John said this. He said, when people receive Jesus' testimony, it proves that God is true. And I spent the whole first half of my life believing that God wasn't true. Science had disproved Christianity. The Bible was full of hypocrisies and probably made up. All of my teachers taught me that God wasn't real and it was a myth. And all of this kind of stuff. Media around me was teaching me a kind of largely secular, atheistic worldview. And I didn't believe it. But I can tell you, the day I met the Christ... I knew for sure that it was true and I received it and I believed it. You know, I didn't work my way to it. I'd done nothing. I didn't deserve it. My history was I was a musician playing in bands. I was a druggie. I was a, I don't know, hedonist, I guess. I was just looking for parties and fun. I do know I nearly died twice taking drug overdoses accidentally because I just wanted to have more fun. <laughs> didn't mean to kill myself, but I woke up after three days in a coma, and I was paralyzed all down one side of my body. You know, I'd done nothing. I hadn't done one decent thing. And one day, I was on an underground train somewhere underneath central London, ashamed. And I said, answered this question, if there's a God, if you're there, I've just done so much that I'm ashamed of. Uh, and if you're real, and if it's possible to be forgiven, I want to be forgiven. And I want to know what this life is all about. And in the busyness and noise of an underground train under central London, the peace that came to me in that moment was unbelievable. I felt loved. I felt secure. I felt alive. For the first time in my life, I felt like, why have I missed this? And then God spoke to me very simply and just said this, you are my son. 
you know, that I had my John moment. Then I knew who I was. I wasn't just this meaningless guy trying to find his way through life. I was loved by a perfect father and have been to this day. You see, the final verse of this passage brings us to perhaps the toughest challenge that John sets up for every single one of us. Let me read to you what he says. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him or her. He's giving us a choice. He, he paints a picture of two contrasting things. On this side, he says, if you believe in the Son, you receive eternal life. By believing in the Son, I don't just mean believing that Jesus existed. Every historian will tell you he existed. By believing in the Son, I mean believing that he died and rose again so that he could offer you this life. That's what it means. By believing in the Son, you get eternal life and you find forgiveness. Now, this is the good side, by the way. <laughs> yeah, believing in the Son, you receive eternal life and forgiveness. And then he says, if you do not obey the Son, that means rejecting him, you will not see life. And the wrath of God remains on you. That means you still carry the guilt for all the things that you've thought and said and done that are wrong. It's a bit like this. Imagine this is your life, your catalogue of things that you're ashamed of. And here's you, and here's God, and you can't connect. You don't see life. But it says in the Bible that when Jesus died on the cross, all of that was transferred to him. And he destroyed it forever, never to be brought up again. You get reconnected with God. It's incredible, but it's true. You see, the, the guilt has gone because the sin has gone. But it's the choice that each of us has to make. That's what John's setting up. Believe in the Son or don't believe. So you could go today and know a totally different identity. You came in as an orphan, you leave as a son or as a daughter. You could go away with a totally different life because it's possible to know full and abundant life because of this one act that Jesus, Jesus enacted for us on the cross. And that transformation can happen in your life where you begin to decrease and all of your pride disappears and you receive the joy of knowing what you're born for. And it all comes through forgiveness and knowing the love of a father. So I'm going to give you that opportunity to do that right now and then I'm going to pray for people who are sick, okay? So listen, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray a prayer that is a prayer that any of us can pray and you just kind of say it quietly in your own head if you like. I'm not going to embarrass anybody. I'm not going to ask anybody to come up to the front. I'm not going to pull anybody out. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray a prayer that is a prayer saying, I believe in this. I too need to be forgiven. And can I just say, it doesn't matter how young you are, or how old you are, you are loved by God and you can choose him today. And it's a prayer saying thank you for the cross, for dying for me, 
and thank you for the gift of forgiveness and the chance of a brand new life. And it's receiving that gift. This is the prayer that takes you from being lost to being found, from being dead to being alive. So I'd like every head to bow, if that's okay. I'm just going to pray. Father, I thank you that you love us and you sent your son for me and all of these dear friends. Holy Spirit, just help people to know that this is a good thing to do, to choose life. Take away any fear or doubt and let faith come by your Holy Spirit. Can you pray this in your head with me? Lord Jesus Christ, thank you that you died on the cross for me and that today you offer me forgiveness. I believe in you. I choose you today. And I choose to receive this free gift of eternal life. Come into my life. Increase as I decrease. Show me the plan. Lead me and be my Lord, my Savior, and my good, good Father. Help me to know right now that I am loved with an everlasting love. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.